and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Roz Taylor. A lot of discussions about AI start with the premise, should we be worried? Or often, how scared should we be? The Cambridge politics professor, David Runciman, has a nuanced view of this, and he's just written a book about it, The Handover, How We Gave Control of Our Lives to Corporations, States and AIs. Welcome to The Bunker, David. Hi, nice to be here. You start by thinking about an idea that goes back to the philosopher Thomas Hobbes, which is the idea of the Leviathan. For those people listening who don't know their 17th century philosophy, and there will be some, tell or remind us about what that is. Yeah, so the Leviathan was Hobbes's word for what we call the state, which is the dominating institution of modern life. It, it does run our lives. The British state is the most powerful thing out there for people who live in Britain. But back in the 17th century, it was a novel idea, the idea that you would build this mechanical, artificial, political machine to take decisions for people. That's the basic idea. And the word that Hobbes used to describe it was an automaton, or a word we might use is robot. So he thought of it as a kind of robot. It was this big, clunky, mechanical device that was built to be super powerful. It's not human, but it takes decisions for human beings. And it has these superpowers that allow it to dominate us. And if you read about it, sometimes you can feel like you're reading about contemporary anxieties about AI, these super powerful machines that we're building to take decisions for us that have these superpowers. And the fear now echoes some of the fears then. What happens if we lose control of these things? What happens if we lose control of the Leviathan? What happens if we lose control of the robots? And back in the 17th century, the Leviathan, the state, was very small in comparison to the vast, vast range of things that it does today, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, it was it was both small and, by our standards, pretty powerless. If you were running a state in the 17th century, there wasn't a lot you could do, not least because you had no idea what was going on. If you were sitting in 17th century Westminster or Whitehall, you had no idea what was happening down the road, never mind you know, in Wales or the north of England. So it was all guesswork. In the intervening centuries, we've turned these machines into vast, complicated, bureaucratic engines of decision-making, huge, employing millions of people, taking decisions about almost all aspects of our lives. But you can trace their origin back to this original idea. They still function in more or less the same way. Human beings take decisions on behalf of other human beings, but the enactment of those decisions, what actually makes them stick in the world, is this vast bureaucratic machinery. And it has changed everything. I mean, it has been completely transformative for better and for worse. And that's the other, I think, echo with the AI story. At the moment, we're really, really unsure whether these new super smart machines are going to be good for us or are going to kill us all. I mean, that's the basic fear. And you could say we have been living with those fears about these other machines, states, and as I say in the book, corporations too, which are similar, for 300 years. They have been really good for us. I mean, states do amazing things for human beings. They give us security, stability, peace, prosperity, and they have the power to kill us all. So the state has its own existence, which is a very interesting idea and really key to your book, even though that existence, of course, is not sentient. And that's key to what you're saying about AI as well, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, it is. And, and there are obviously lots of differences between states and, and robots or AIs. But the similarities are ones that we, we easily ignore. And one of them, part of the artificiality of these things, is they don't have a human lifespan. 
So the British state, you can argue about when it was born. And let's say it was born sometime in the 17th century, but it's been around recognizably as the same thing for centuries. So it doesn't die in the way that we die. And the people who run it come and go. There have been all sorts of people in charge of the British state taking decisions for it. But the weight, the consequence of those decisions carries over time in a way that no human being could sustain. So they have this extraordinary durability. And some corporations have that too, not quite on the same scale as states, but there are corporations around now that have been around for more than 100 years. They live longer than we do, but what they don't have is human-like intelligence, any more, I think, than the current generation of AIs do. And what they definitely don't have is consciousness. So it's not like I think we can get inside the mind of the British state and understand what it's thinking any more than we can get inside the mind of chat GPT and understand what it's thinking, because it probably isn't thinking. What it's doing is deciding. It's, it's, an, it's an algorithmic process. Things get inputted and outcome decisions, answers to questions, this rather than that. We will go to war. We won't go to war. We will raise taxes. We won't raise taxes. We'll spend it on this, not that. And then these machines have the power to make those decisions stick. So there is something about them that is fundamentally inhuman, I think. Not just that they don't think like we do, but they have these superpowers without having some of the human qualities we might want to go with them, like a conscience or a soul or a sense of guilt or anything like that. I'm not sure the British state ever particularly feels guilty. Politicians do all the time. Human beings do. But states don't and robots don't. Yes, you put it very strikingly, I think. You say, we live with vast artificial creatures that overshadow all we do and make us who we are. And I think that's how quite a lot of people might conceptualise AI, but it's not how they think about states and about how they think about corporations, particularly, I think, corporations, which people are inclined to trust very much at the moment. Yeah, it's odd, isn't it? I mean, not all (laughs) corporations, and it goes through phases. I don't think people trust banks much. Um, But weirdly, they do seem to trust the big, the vast, the biggest of all corporations in the world at the moment, which are the ones that produce the new technology. The huge tech companies are surprisingly well-trusted compared to their political equivalents, states. They have similar powers and they have similar inhuman qualities as well. And I think one of the mistakes that we make, and I'm guilty of it as much as anyone else, We spend our time trying to humanize these things because it's easier to understand them. It's easier to understand what to think about Facebook or Meta as it now is. If you think of it as Mark Zuckerberg, he has incredible power in that corporation and a lot of the decisions will be his decisions. But Meta is not Mark Zuckerberg because no human being could operate on that scale with that power. Tesla is not Elon Musk. The British state is not Rishi Sunak. The American state is not Joe Biden. And one of the reasons we know this, it hasn't happened yet to Meta, but it will at some point, is you can swap out the people at the top and the corporation keeps going. And it will keep going in corporation terms unless it goes bust. And states will pretty much keep going regardless. One of the amazing things about states is that almost nothing stops them. They keep going for decades and for centuries. But the, the, the desire to humanize them is really there. And it's, it is, I think, similar to probably the way we're going to go with these new AIs, which is we will also try to humanize them because when things are human, we find them easier to relate to and understand. And one of the arguments I make in my book is 
I understand the impulse, but it's incredibly dangerous to humanize these things because it's it's to mistake what they are. And if we humanize them, we will misunderstand some of their capacities because some of their capacities are not human. But even very clever people are susceptible to this kind of humanization, aren't they? I'm thinking in particular of that Google employee who began to see the AI he was working on as sentient and had conversations with it that he released because he was so concerned about them. Now, of course, you're absolutely right. They they are not sentient, but we really struggle, don't we, to believe that they will not one day be sentient. Yeah. Is that the problem in a way, that we think we're on a slippery slope? Yeah. Um, and I think it's true of both of the kinds of entities that we're talking about here, both the, the political economic machines or monsters, as I call them at various points in the book, these vast state and corporate entities, and this new breed of machines, the new kinds of decision-making machines, the AIs and the algorithms, which is at some deep level, I think we assume their tendency is bound to be to become more and more like us, partly because it's how we experience the world. We anthropomorphize things and I've had the experience of that Google engineer, I'm sure other people too, where you get this uncanny encounter with some kind of algorithmic device or machine where you suddenly start to feel suspicious that it is thinking or it, it knows what you're thinking or it has some of those human-like qualities. Maybe it makes you laugh or it makes you nervous. Of course, we are bound to, to try and make these things human so that we can recognize them and being clever doesn't protect you from any of this. Everyone is human. All humans are human and all humans have a tendency to humanize what they encounter. But it is risky. It is dangerous. And I think it's probably a mistake. I don't think there's any reason to suppose that the arc of AI is towards human-like consciousness any more than there is a reason to suppose that the arc of the Leviathan was to become more and more human what the Leviathan became was more and more mechanical, more and more powerful, more and more controlling of our lives. And then we spend our time trying to humanize it, trying to put in people in positions of power that we think we can relate to. And we are so preoccupied with the human face of these things. So if we go back to politics, we spend so much time thinking about who do we want in charge? Do we want Sunak or Starmer? Do we want Biden or Trump? that we forget that's not the important question. The important question is, how does the machine work? And I don't think we spend nearly enough time in politics thinking about how the machine works. I don't think we spend nearly enough time asking ourselves, not if we put this person in charge, will everything be better or will it be worse? But if we change the way the machine worked, maybe we would have more control in our lives. We don't do that. Which is interesting because it sounds rather like some things that Dominic Cummings has said in the past. Yeah. And yet, the paradox, of course, being that Dominic Cummings was the person, you know, one of the main people who enabled Boris Johnson to become prime minister. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, I, mean, I mean, that is that that is true. And I do write about Cummings in my book. And I do find Dominic Cummings fascinating. Uh, he is a really, really interesting writer and thinker about politics. I don't think anyone should be under any illusions that he's just some kind of, you know, crackpot loon. He's not. Um, he's a very serious person with some interesting ideas. And he does grapple with this question. So he certainly, I think, believes that the machinery of state is the thing that we need to change. But he's a, also a classic example. It doesn't matter how smart you are, you can succumb to all of those 
regular human failings, not least vanity, the temptations of power and all of that. I mean, Dominic Cummings is a good example of both of the things I'm talking about. Thinking mechanically about politics matters, and he's no question, he, he was and is really good at that. And you try and humanize it, throw in your lot with Boris Johnson, and you completely mistake what it is that you're dealing with, because, you know, you, in the end, changing the humans isn't going to save you. And it didn't save him. He was swapped out before Johnson was. Let's think, though, about what not being sentient means for AI. Because just because you you don't have the urge to survive and to reproduce yourself, which are both key characteristics of being human and being sentient, doesn't mean that AI is therefore harmless. It doesn't mean that in the hands of states and corporations that it can't be deployed to do harm, does it? Oh, for sure. It can. I, I think it could be deployed to do amazingly good things, no question. could be transformative in all sorts of positive ways. It could also do, no question, immense amount of harm. I don't think not being sentient means you don't have an impulse to survive. I think lots of machines are can be set up to be driven by an impulse to keep going. And I think that's probably true of states, which aren't sentient, but have this amazing desire to keep themselves going particularly when they feel themselves to be under threat. They have a kind of existential drive in them, but they're not conscious. And I think they, I think it is possible to be those two things. And certainly it would be possible to build and design machines that have this kind of impulse to keep going regardless. And that's one of the things that's terrifying about them and makes them different from human beings. One of the extraordinary thing about things about human beings is human beings are willing to sacrifice their lives sometimes. It's one of the things that allows politics to work in the way that it does. You just have to look at war. But you might build machines that think they should never sacrifice themselves, and that would make them extraordinarily dangerous in the way that it's possible states are those kinds of machines. I mean, states, at least potentially, might think in order to save themselves, they have to destroy the world. That's how you get mutually assured destruction ideas inhabiting states. So it's very hard to know exactly how to frame the non-sentient, non-consciousness part of this, and not to miss some of the features that might be the, the mechanical version of things that we're familiar with as humans, the, the drive to stay alive. But the other point you make, I think, is really central to this. When we think about AI, and I do this, we all do it, we think of it as a kind of human versus machine thing. Are they coming to take our jobs? You know, Are they going to make us happier and healthier, or are they going to attack us in some way, the, the rise of the killer robots. It's easy to picture it as human versus machine. And that's wrong because actually what will happen to us humans depends on those other machines, the states and corporations that run, own, build, and manage the AIs. It's not going to end up as a contest between people like you and me and robots. It's, that's never coming. What our future depends on is how these state and corporate agents that we've built and lived with for hundreds of years manage these machines. And in the book, I say at the end, one of the things we should be scared of is because states are machines and AIs are machines, they might have more in common with each other than they do with us. And I think we, some of us feel it already in our lives. If you work for a corporation or a state in a bureaucracy in a large organization, you can feel the organization and you technologies, new smart systems, new algorithmic decision-making mechanisms, joining forces against the people. 
I mean, I work for a university, which is a pretty tame kind of organization, but even I feel it sometimes that you sort of feel like, what's going on here? The people are being squeezed out by the corporate machine and the machine machines. And that is the future that we should be scared of, that inhuman political and economic agents and new kinds of super smart decision-making machines will decide they get on better with each other than they do with us. And is that because they're basically going to be better at governing and making decisions than we can be? Or is it because we suspect that they might be better and therefore will be inclined to put them in charge of more and more functions of government? I think they will be better at some aspects of it and worse at some aspects of it. So you would get, you would certainly get a different kind of politics and government if government machinery and AI machinery joined forces. In lots of ways, it might be more efficient, quicker, smarter in the sense that it would have a sharper understanding of the information needed to take decisions. But it might also be inflexible. It might be heartless. And it might just go down the wrong track and get stuck with it. So one of the things that human beings are good at, surprisingly, I think, is noticing when things have gone wrong. It is one of our qualities. Sometimes we find it hard to admit it, and politicians find it hard to admit it. But because politicians are human, politicians can know and understand the limits of their own decision-making capacity. States and AIs are probably worse at that than we humans are. And so there's going to be a trade-off. There always has been a trade-off. The Leviathan was a trade-off. We traded security, which we wanted for a certain kind of freedom, which we lost. We gave control of our lives to the state. There will always be trade-offs. Now the trade-off is probably efficiency against a kind of human, recognizably human flexibility. And if we stick with human flexibility, we will be less efficient, no question. Humans are less efficient than machines. But if we go all in on efficiency, we will no question lose some of the humanity in our politics. And it's probably happening already. China is a state that extensively uses AI in the way it monitors its citizens and rewards them and punishes them. Is it a bit of a bellwether for what could happen in other states too, and potentially in democracies? I mean, it, it is. Um, I don't know what's going to happen in China. And all of these predictions of the next 10, 20 years are incredibly fragile because so much could change. And the Chinese state isn't looking as powerful as it did even a couple of years ago. I think one of the interesting things about China is just the narrative arc of how people in the West think about China and COVID has been through such an extraordinary change. So initially, China looked like this super efficient state that managed to keep its citizens safe. And a nickname for the Chinese state in China itself is sometimes the Leviathan. It's the classic Leviathan. But now it looks like maybe zero COVID was a mistake and it went all in on something which it could do because it had the capacity and the efficiency and the control to do it, but it didn't have the flexibility. And zero COVID may actually long-term have done a lot of damage to the Chinese state. So I don't know, but that state is more like, in some of its features, that nightmarish vision of the Leviathan joining forces with the new technology because China is, particularly in military technology, 
at least equal with and possibly ahead of the West. And the Chinese state is investing on a scale that Western states aren't. Western corporations might be, but Western states aren't. And in China, states and corporations are in much closer alliance around these questions than in the United States. So in China, there is at least potentially a coming together between the three kinds of robots or monsters I talk about in this book, states, corporations, and AIs. States and corporations are closer in China. They have a closer connection with AI development and technology, particularly around military matters. And they have more control over their citizens because there aren't democratic freedoms. There is a nightmarish version of China, which could be the future, but precisely because I think that version of politics has the weaknesses of an inhuman inflexibility in some of its mechanical structures, it would be crazy to bet on China for the future. It may be that's its fatal weakness. It may be that version of the Leviathan isn't human enough. And in the end, it's still a human world. The AIs haven't taken over yet. If you're not human enough, human beings might still reject what you have to offer. It's interesting, a critique of AI, because a lot of critiques of AI stem from the inbuilt biases that AI systems have. I mean, an example is The Guardian's current dilemma, which I was reading about earlier today. They won't let ChatGPT scrape their content, but they worry that not doing so makes ChatGPT more right-wing because it isn't exposed to um, <laughs> the centrist and left-wing <laughs> content that it would get if it read The Guardian. Isn't this always going to be the problem that superintelligence, because it, it derives from our own limited intelligences, is always going to actually magnify them? And it's not so much a question of extra human input into the AI, making it better, but more that the AI just exaggerates and, and worsens, if you like, our worst impulses. Yeah, and that's partly because as of yet, they're not super intelligent. They are still data scraping machines. I mean, these large language models and so on, they're super impressive to us at the moment because they have this uncanny ability to mimic us and to impersonate us and in incredibly fast time to predict what we might find a convincing answer to a question without understanding the question, having any thoughts of their own and so on. But that is an intelligence. That is just incredible data scraping capacity. So they will reflect us because they are just mimicking us. And so it really does matter how they're set up and what databases they draw on. And if The Guardian is worried about that, The Guardian probably has good reason to be worried about that. But it's also interesting, even at the level of this conversation, that we're talking about this thing called The Guardian. Um, and The Guardian is itself a kind of corporate agent that has choices and decisions to make and its anxieties. They probably are the anxieties of its editors and the people who work there. But still, that decision is The Guardian's decision to make. And it will hold or not hold because The Guardian has that kind of artificial corporate power over the people who work there and the people who buy its product or use its product without paying for it, in most people's case. So it remains that weird, complicated dance between the humans who are providing the input, both for The Guardian and for ChatGPT, and then the decision-making, which is happening at the level of the people who run and own ChatGPT and decide how it works, and that is a corporate entity too, OpenAI, and then The Guardian, which is also a corporate entity, thinking about how human beings should fit into what they do. And I'm not saying that The Guardian is a monstrous, heartless robot, because it's not. It's made up of human beings who do worry about these things. 
But its decision-making capacity, like the decision-making capacity of the people, that is, the corporate entities who own and run ChatGPT, that's what counts. And if we just reduce it to human beings and their anxieties, we will miss what's really going on here. Indeed. I, I have no opinions on The Guardian because uh, I had to sign a non-disclosure agreement when I uh, stopped working for them some time ago. So indeed, I <laughs> so, so when I said, you know, I work for a university, so maybe, you know, working for a newspaper, not that different. Everybody has that sense of it. And I also think, and I talk about this quite a lot in the book, everybody who works for a big organization has that feeling about that organization that we also have about the new AIs, which is, we don't understand how they reach the decisions that they do. You know, there's this term black box to describe the mystery at the heart of the new technology. Even the people who build these machines aren't quite sure they understand how inputs produce outputs. That is true of corporate entities too. Even if you work quite near the top of a big organization, even if you've been part of designing how it works, you still find yourself occasionally completely baffled by the decisions it makes because there's a black box there as well. You can't find the person, the conscience, the heart, the soul. There isn't one. And we've been living with that for hundreds of years. We've been living with this weird, mysterious, inhuman quality in the machines that rule our world. We shouldn't think this new thing is new for us. What's new about it is the new supercapacity of the new machines. But the dilemma, we've built things to make our lives go better, but we're not completely sure that we either control them anymore or understand how they work. That story is hundreds of years old. But it's also a story that I think will uh, intensify over the next few years and decades as AI takes an even bigger role in society. Mm. And there will be people in society who say, stop, I don't want this anymore in a kind of almost neo-Luddite way, but I don't mm. wish to make it seem necessarily as reactionary as that might imply, that they say, no, because of this black box, because I can't see what is inside, I want this to stop and I want this to end. Is that a risk too? And is that even a risk by itself that's, that's one we should be equally concerned about? I mean, on some level, I hope that some people do say that, right? Or otherwise, we've just given up. You know, we've, we've handed over the decision-making to the machine. Some human beings are going to need to say, stop, slow down, are you sure? It could be done, as you say, in a, in a Luddite, neo-Luddite way where people just say, stop, I want to get off, I want to exit, I want to get out. And in the end, I don't think there will be an exit from this. I don't think you can live in the 21st century and take yourself off-grid unless you're incredibly determined and also willing to sacrifice most things that most people wouldn't sacrifice, including basic security, I suspect. You, to take yourself off grid is dangerous now and leaves you exposed and vulnerable in ways most people wouldn't be remotely comfortable with. But the other thing to say about that is, if you are one of those people, and we all have these moments where you want to say, stop, I'm really unsure and uncomfortable about the way this is going. I feel like my life is no longer my own. I feel like decision-making is in the hands of machines and entities I don't control, I don't understand. The one thing that is not available under those circumstances is just to think that human beings on their own can resist this. Say we're unhappy about the direction of travel of AI and data scraping and the corporations that monetize our data and market themselves to us and in many ways without us fully understanding it overshadow our lives 
and we want to rein them in and we want to gain more power over them. We want more power over the big tech companies. There is only one organization that can give us that power and it's the state. And the state is another one of these things. So we have to, as it were, regain control of one of these machines in order to exercise control over these other machines. Or if we, you know, we might think the state is too powerful. You might be in China and think, I want my state to have less control over me. You're not going to be able as an individual, even groups of individuals to resist. You're going to have to find some other corporate or political entities that can resist the state on your behalf. A long, long time ago, we moved beyond the idea that human beings could do this for themselves. If we want to control the new machines that we're building, we have to get better control over the machines that we've already built. If we want more control over AI, we need more control over the state. We can't control AI ourselves. And that's just the choice that we face. I think that's the realistic prospect that we all have to recognize here, which is there isn't a rescue act for humanity in this story. What there is are better and worse machines that serve us in better and worse ways and in which we can recognize our humanity, but they are not themselves human and their names are states and corporations. David, this has been a fascinating discussion. Thanks so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. And The Handover, How We Gave Control of Our Lives to Corporations, States and AIs, is published by Profile Books. It's a fascinating read. And David is also host of the Past, Present, Future podcast. If you enjoyed today's bunker, you can support us by searching Patreon Bunker Podcast and giving us as little as £3 a month. It's not very much, uh, just to help us keep going and making more interesting podcasts. I'm Ros Taylor, and thanks for listening. your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell, and me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. The Bunker was written and presented by Roz Taylor. The producer was Chris Jones, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production.